electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today's episode is all about weekend viewing. First, a box office bonanza. Barbie and Oppenheimer tickets blowing past expectations. The flashes and, and the sounds in the theater. You ever fall asleep? <laughs> in the movie? I try not to. I tried not to. The dramatic road ahead for Hollywood with Variety's executive editor, Brent Lang. It may well be the last hurrah because if you look ahead, a lot of the major studios are looking at moving their big tentpole releases in the fall because of the strike. And from the theater to the soccer pitch, Lionel Messi's first match in Miami. Bruin Capital CEO, George Pine. Well, I think you're going to see this is going to be the decade of soccer in the United States. Those stories plus the other huge story today, it's bye-bye birdie for Twitter. Or soon to be x.com. If you thought Meta made any sense at all, then this does make a lot of sense. Did you think Meta made any sense at all? No, I didn't. Tech's latest rebrand. We're still Googling. We're not alphabeting, that's for sure. Plus pizza, workplace inclusivity, and so much more. It's Monday, July 24th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue it, please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's Monday and we're ready to go. Of course, we've got that big Fed meeting coming this weekend. So a lot of people waiting to see what the Fed will do. It's anticipated the pause is off. One rate hike, perhaps, and and then we'll see. I think that the yield should be rising just because of what's going on in the Dow. Because it's going to... Uh, wealth effect. It's showing it's, like, a, it's yeah. soft landing, maybe. I mean, we're nowhere and the market's here. not concerned. No. Yeah. And, and the Fed is... Not to say that it's the inverse of the put where they're they're nervous about the stock market going up, but I'm, you know, I'm sure it's one of the things they look at, one of the things yeah. in there. Well, that's what we were saying last week. Yeah. If, you, if the market goes up, they're going to say, okay, let's. Uh, but ten straight days. I, I, I'm not talking down. about the Fed. I'm talking about just because the yields have not cooperated with the Fed, and you know they still aren't three eight and four and in four eight. It should be much higher than that. Maybe that'll start. The more the Dow goes every day. I mean, I mean yields make it look like they're, they're going to have to reverse and, and lower rates at some point soon. But I know. the market doesn't say that. The stock market doesn't say that because if they're having to cut rates, it's going to be because, <laughs> you know, there's something else going on that doesn't the look right. The NASDAQ's taken a little bit of a breather just in, yeah. in, a, in a relative basis. But the Dow certainly isn't as broad as, as real market technicians would like right. yeah. to have the, everybody participating. But... You can't deny it. Ten straight days. And only two points on Friday. It's like it's like someone wanted Barely them to. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk Twitter because it's no longer that. Um, Twitter rebranding to X. That's its new name overnight. CEO Lindy Ocarino tweeting X is here. Let's do this. Over the weekend, she tweeted an explanation of the changes, calling 
X the future state of unlimited interactivity centered in audio, video, messaging, payments, and banking. She also noted that it will be powered by AI. Elon Musk's tweets about the changes were less formal. He said, soon we shall bid adieu to the Twitter brand and gradually all the birds. You're looking right there at a shot of Twitter's headquarters with the X superimposed <laughs> in a sort of Bruce Wayne style uh, way. I love it. Linda Yaccarino has to come up with a reason for why all of this, you know, like whatever. Elon does things because he thinks they make sense and he just wants to run with it. And then Linda has to explain it to everybody else. If, but, but if you thought Meta made any sense at all, then this does make a lot of sense. because no Did you think Meta made any no, sense at all? No, I didn't. But in terms of, of this, if, if it's going to do, you just mentioned about five or six things. That's a lot more than just obnoxious tweets and trolling and stuff like that. It's like that. Google becoming Alphabet. Well, look, kind this of, is, maybe, but yeah. this is, maybe it's to go back, and, and, and Walter Isaacson was tweeting about this over the weekend, this was his original dream from PayPal. for pre-PayPal. Yeah. Before he ever sold his company to PayPal, this is what he wanted PayPal to be. And this is very much what we've talked about, a lot of what they call the super apps yeah. uh, in China and elsewhere do. And so he's hoping that I he mean, can that makes migrate sense the to company me. That to makes that. sense to me. But are we now Xing instead of tweeting when you put well, things out? Well, this is right. Like, That's everybody's the, on Twitter trying to figure out are they what is the name in the same way they were trying to do with, were they threading, were they this, were they that? We'll see. I don't know. We're still Googling. And we're, no, we're not alphabeting, that's for sure. Right. I know. But they kept the, they kept the sub-brands. I mean, even Meta kept the sub-brands. Right. This is Twitter's gone, though, right? Well, I don't know. Is, is Twitter gone? My app still says... Company formerly known as Twitter. Says, says Twitter. So. If it was just doing what we do with Twitter, the little bird is kind of cool. I like the little bird. I do, too. I do. But that's it's kind of the... It's just frivolous. If it's going to become, like, such a big part of our life in so many different ways, then I can see how... I guess. One of our favorite foods, Joe, just reporting. I don't know. Becky, is, is pizza counting your, is your favorite foods? I know Joe and I have. My kids. Kids, you're not, pizza's no. not a thing? You guys okay. are kind of like perfect, on the same the, classification, like right? The perfect, uh, with the salad, it's the perfect meal, probably. You can't, can't with miss. The salad. It's hard, it's hard I like, to screw I, up pizza. You know, I, I do like pizza, I will, I, but it's, I, it's not something no you can indulge in often. I mean, it's one of the greats. It's one of the greats. Yeah. Uh, Domino's Pizza reported just moments ago earnings of an adjusted $3.08 a share, three cents better than expectations. Revenue coming in at $1.02 billion. That missed estimates. U.S. same store sales growing 0.1% during the quarter, which missed the street's expectations. A little bit surprising. Meanwhile, international same store sales grew 3.6%. That's the good news, topping estimates on that side. The company also said that two thirds of its stores will have the ability to take orders from the newly announced partnership with Uber Eats. And you're looking at that stock up and call it punch. It, it is, and I don't want to hurt Domino's prospects, but it is possible now they've refined it at home to make a pretty good pizza. You can, the crust is pretty good. Use a little of the uh, uh, sauce, put some mozzarella on it. Wait, so. you mean just one of the crusts that you buy? Yeah, yeah. Chef yeah, yeah. Kernan. Yeah. We're talking about yes. Chef Kernan. We've no, been those doing are, that more. Yeah. They're, and they're pretty close to, it might not be quite what but you can make it up at home anytime like 15 minutes done yeah. mm -hmm. i was looking into now you can buy for like 200 dollars these um pizza ovens like these pizza ovens yeah. and i was thinking that might be a worthy investment i think that is probably i think there's no doubt if it's only 200 dollars. our neighbor has one yeah, yeah and he loves it okay it's fantastic see. yeah and the question is, does it break? I don't know. I don't, you know. Oh, he's been using it for a while. Okay. 200 bucks, I think you can. It was like two. I mean, the, I think the good ones, unfortunately, the good ones are, are more. Higher, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's still in the cheapskate category. 
This week marks uh, 33 years since the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed into law, banning discrimination against workers with disabilities. Yet employees are often reluctant to disclose the disability. Sharon Epperson joins us now with some new findings. Hey, Sharon. Good morning, Joe. You know, a new report by the nonprofit Disability Inn recently surveyed 485 companies in 30 industries and found the vast majority, 93%, encourage employees to confidentially self-identify as having a disability. But most aren't doing it. Only 4.6% of U.S. employees at those companies self-identify as a person with a disability. Meanwhile, the prevalence of people with disabilities in the workplace is far greater, as high as 25%, according to a recent survey by Boston Consulting Group. Some employers, like PSEG, an energy company based in Newark, New Jersey, have initiatives to help foster more inclusion and encourage people with disabilities to bring their full selves to work. Still, many people with disabilities may stay silent, fearing stigma or losing out on a job or promotion. Disability rights advocate and author Emily Ladau, who I met with recently, says that can change. When we shift that narrative and we begin to say, you can identify as having a disability, that is something that you can be proud of that makes you who you are. That number of people who are identifying in the workplace as disabled is going to grow. After its awareness campaign, PSEG saw the percentage of people who identify as disabled in its workplace triple. Joe? Okay, uh, Sharon, the, the uh, process for accommodations uh, at work is often a difficult one. Could that uh, be deterring employees at this point from requesting what they want? You know, it actually could. There, the American with Disabilities Act is requiring that employers make reasonable accommodations, adjustments or modifications for employees with a known disability so that they can have equal employment opportunities. But many companies don't know how many of their workers have a disability or even require accommodations. And researchers at Boston's consulting group say companies may not offer or approve some accommodations because of that. They also found that when people with disabilities request reasonable accommodations, whether it's equipment or software, flexible working arrangements, or adjustments to their physical environment, and those requests are approved, the outcomes at work improve significantly. And also, one thing that companies worry about is the cost, right? But the expense generally is not that great. 56% of accommodations cost nothing to implement. According to a recent report, others cost on average about $500. I can understand why people don't want to say anything, though. If they think it's going to be yes. something that the employer looks at and says, oh, mm, you're not as valuable as you were before. And I, I think right. of it just even when I was pregnant, I didn't yes. want to tell people. Yes, exactly, exactly. And you don't want to, and particularly people who have that invisible disability, people who might be neurodivergent, may not want to explain what accommodations they need. They, again, they don't want to be missing out on any opportunities that, and be lower on the, I think, on the rank. I think the key is it has to come from the top. If PSNG is doing right. something like that and letting people know it's okay. And have leaders, and have leaders say what their issues have been and right. be really open about that. Thanks, sure. Sure. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod. I saw Oppenheimer. I'm still kind of twitching once in a while. The box office blowout. Barbenheimer tickets blew past expectations, but Variety's executive editor says this might be the last big movie weekend for a while. Movies just simply cost too much money, and that's kind of colliding with these new labor tensions, which means that somehow, somewhere, someone's gonna have to try to figure out a way to make these things a little cheaper. 
strikes, content, and big media players are all right after this. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Hugh. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Shares of AMC Entertainment are showing a couple of things. A judge on Friday blocked a proposed settlement on the company's stock conversion plan at issue. A group of investors had sued over the company's plan to convert the APE preferred units to common stock. The judge rejected the settlement agreement between the company and investors because it would also settle potential claims uh, by preferred shareholders who are not represented in the lawsuit. The company's filed a new version of the settlement with the court. It's expected to be made uh, public today, but uh, the Barbenheimer uh, performance, and you look across the board, even though Mission Impossible is a little bit uh, disappointing, there are people back uh, at the theaters, and this was the biggest weekend we've had uh, in a while. And I saw uh, Oppenheimer. I'm still kind of twitching uh, once in a while. I'm supposed to see it tonight, assuming yeah, tonight a babysitter it's, it's works It's long, out. and there's a lot. Of, I mean, Christopher Nolan's a genius, and it, I can't believe someone wrote this script, but it's from the, from the book itself. But the, the flashes and, and the sounds in the theater of, of just the shocking things that, that uh, I'm not going to give anything away, because there's nothing to give away. <laughs> it's, all, right. it's like a documentary that all this stuff happened. But it's... Uh, you know, certain times you can almost feel like, uh, and they warn you against certain movies where there's almost too much sensory um, stimulation. And maybe did you see it in IMAX? No, I'm but I saw it, it and IMAX. it was loud. <laughs> but I did see it late at night. It ended at 12:30, and I had gotten up at six. So there may have been some times when it was jarring me out of uh, right. Right? What? What was I saying? You were saying it was jarring you out of a slumber because it was so late at night. So I'm like minding my own business, sort of, you know, relaxing. And stuff happens, and it's a little bit uh, unsettling if you're, you know. I mean, I didn't sleep through all, maybe a tenth of it, maybe. Did you ever fall asleep? In the movie, I try not to. <laughs> I tried not to. If I'm but home it was, sometimes. I was up at six, and I was out in the hot sun for five hours. And then, um, but it was, and it's, man, a dialogue. It's just, it's a dialogue movie. I mean, that's... That's basically what's, what, what it's about. And there's a, think about. Don't tell me how it ends. No, I, yeah, right. <laughs> but think about being the person who figured out how to do that and, and what it was used for and, and all the arguments. And then about, watching it spin out of your control. Right, and, but all the arguments that, you know, it saved. It, it's everything that you can imagine that we've talked about for those two events for Hiroshima and Nagasaki is, is included there. And it's. It's well done. And he's a genius, Christopher Nolan. Yeah. yeah. Barbenheimer lived up to expectations at the box office this weekend, generating an estimated $235 million in total domestic revenue. Both films 
Uh, smashed opening weekend estimates. Barbie earned approximately $155 million in its first three days, the highest opening of the year, while Oppenheimer made around $80.5 million. Joining us for more, Brent Lang, Variety uh, Executive Editor. It's just so weird, Brent, but this, that we're even talking about those two movies in, in, you know, in the same breath. Uh, I get it. And it, it makes a good portmanteau, you know, to do Barbenheimer. But they're so different. But they're both really breathing life into uh, theater chains. I'm just hoping it's not the last hurrah because of the strikes. Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there because it really could be the last hurrah. I mean, this is a phenomenal weekend. And it's a reason for uh, movie theater owners to feel very good about the state of their business. Um, it's also a celebration of kind of original um, a little bit offbeat uh, creativity, which has been really missing this summer. And I think when you look at the failure of a lot of the films that have come out this summer, they weren't kind of scratching that itch of having something uh, different, offering something original and sort of zesty. And, and these two films clearly did just that. But uh, as you say, it, it may well be the last hurrah, because if, if you look ahead, a lot of the major studios are looking at moving their big tentpole releases in the fall because of the strike and because of what that means in terms of uh, movie stars being able to promote their films. Where are we with the strike right now? What it, what, what's your forecast, either for both uh, that, that we're talking about? How long? And is it going to be settled in tandem? I don't no, see how I, that... According to my sources, they're probably going to go back to the actors. They feel like they're a little closer with the actors than they are with the writers. But right now, there's kind of a cooling off period. Um, none of the sides are talking to each other, um, which suggests to me that it could last quite uh, a bit of time here. I think optimistically, we're looking at something like October for, for both strikes to be settled, um, probably a little bit later in the year. What's next that you see? And, and do you, is it going to be a slow burn for, for Mission Impossible? I haven't seen it yet. I want to see it. I, are there a lot of people that, that still want to do that? It's going it, to... I want to see it. It's on, I, it's I, on I, my, I don't want to say bucket list, but close to it. Did you see Oppenheimer? I can't, I'm sure I'm going to like it more than Oppenheimer. I know Oppenheimer is very cerebral and everything, <laughs> Brett, uh, Brent, but it was... <laughs> it's, a little, uh, it's definitely at a different uh, type of movie than Oppenheimer. But I think Mission Impossible will be more of an international play. It's going to really struggle, though, because if you look at a lot of these movies, what happened during COVID is um, delays and shutdowns added tens of millions. In the case of Mission Impossible, nearly $100 million to that film's budget. So you're looking at a $300 million film. I don't see how it gets there globally. It'll probably lose money theatrically. The same thing happened with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Um, it's, it's a real big problem in Hollywood. Um, movies just simply cost too much money. And that's kind of colliding with these new um, labor tensions, which means that somehow, somewhere, someone's going to have to try to figure out a way to make these things a little cheaper. The, uh, the different studios and, and Netflix and the, the, the places we watch entertainment, who's going to last the longest? Who's most vulnerable from the strikes? In terms of the strike, I mean, yeah. I think if you look at who's uh, the best positioned, it's a company like an Apple or an Amazon, where entertainment is really just an infinitesimal part of their overall financial picture. I think the um, the pure play media companies like um, Disney, like um, Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, Paramount Global, those are really feeling the pinch. And I think that's going to be a real source of tension within these negotiations, is that 
you know, on the one hand, you have a company with a market cap of $3 trillion in Apple. Uh, on the other hand, you have a company like Paramount Global with a market cap of $10 billion. I mean, there's just a chasm that separates these companies. And if you're an Apple or you're a Netflix, um, you really want to hold on to your proprietary data. Um, and that's been a big issue in these talks uh, about whether or not to share data with um, with actors and writers. The, and the, the theater chains that had a great weekend, they really did, they packed, not, not an open parking space uh, most places. Is it, we're going back to pan, the, the lean years of the pandemic. If this drags on and on and on where there's nothing opening, what's going to induce people to go to the theaters at that point? Well, I think you're you're okay through August. A lot of these studios have already spent money to uh, to market these films, and they banked a lot of press uh, before the strike because they knew about these labor tensions. But then you get into September and October, and you have things like Dune Two apparently moving. Um, people are wondering if Disney's going to stay um, the course with its plans for the Marvels in November. You know, just losing one of those movies, um, they call them tent poles for a reason, right? They hold up the whole slate. So if you lose one of those movies, it's it's it could be you know catastrophic for some of these movie theaters, which have a lot of debt on their books because of a period of of M and A that preceded uh, the pandemic, and that are still struggling to get people to come back to their um, to their venues. And I think they are uh, understandably ecstatic about this weekend, but probably uh, somewhere a little further back, feeling pretty anxious about where things are headed. How do you see it playing out with, with how, and if I were an actor or a writer, I, I would want to, you know, I, I'd be worried about AI and I'd want to participate in streaming revenue uh, as well. So I understand what's going on, but, but how, how do uh, the two sides walk that line where everybody uh, is finally satisfied? How do you think that plays out? And, and you know, I know Fran Dresser doesn't she doesn't want to be called the nanny anymore. But think of her quality. If you were a really strict nanny dealing with children and yelling at her, I don't see why that's not a good quality here. I, I think that's, you know, I think that makes her pretty well suited to dealing with studio executives and actors, right? I mean, I think that the actors are feeling pretty good about Fran Drescher. Um, they really liked that speech she gave yeah. where she announced publicly about why they were going on strike. They feel like she's done a really good job of putting um, the actor's struggle um, in a larger context about issues that the labor movement is having right now. Um, but when you say where both sides are satisfied, I mean, I think ultimately this is going to have to be a compromise and someone's going to have to give in some area. Um, but as you say, like the actors and the writers are dealing with an entertainment ecosystem that's been fundamentally altered. And that's created a lot of tension and it's really impacted them on a dollars and cents basis. So I, I think they feel like they need to, to make a stand here. Um, and that's just going to mean that a resolution is much more difficult to achieve. Oh boy. Okay, Brent, I uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Did, Thanks for uh, having me. Either of you ever watch any of the seasons of Nanny 911? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. We used to watch that. And they picked pick the hardest cases in the world and send a nanny in there and you'd watch them tame these, these really... Hardest cases meaning terrible children? Basically. Basically. <laughs> what basically, ne what yeah. network was this on? Uh, I don't know. There are a lot of seasons and we, we've, <laughs> we used to watch. Years ago, we used to watch my kids. Uh, loved watching it. You know what else Americans love to watch? 
American soccer scored big this weekend. The Women's World Cup clocked millions of viewers, and Lionel Messi brought the heat to Miami. The weekend viewings continue next on Squawk Pod with Bruin Capital CEO George Pine. You've seen a massive appreciation in the value of these franchises. So I think the fundamentals for the MLS over the next five to 10 years are going to be very good. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew. A big weekend for soccer fans in America. First, the U.S. women's team winning their first World Cup match against Vietnam. And then Lionel Messi making his MLS debut with the winning goal. Joining us to talk more about all of it, George Pine, Bruin Capital founder and CEO. Good morning. Uh, lots of folks watching soccer this weekend or football, depending on how you, where you're from, I guess, George. But tell us sort of how you think this, this changes the dynamic and, and how popular ultimately, I mean, is this the moment? We, I think we keep waiting for, I don't know, maybe it's just a series of inflection points, but boy, did this weekend feel like one. Yeah, absolutely. It was a series of inflection points, starting with the Women's World Cup. I mean, 5.2 million people watched the match. Actually, 41,000 people attended in New Zealand. Women's soccer is very popular and expanding rapidly around the world. And I think the United States, with the best players in the world, will be no exception. And of course, Friday night, Miami, Messi scoring the winning uh, goal on a, on a free kick in, in dramatic fashion and sold out electric environment. You know, these are big moments for soccer. And of course, Messi is the greatest or if not one of the greatest soccer players ever. 477 million social media uh, followers, an iconic brand and a great addition to the MLS. So. Longer term, in terms of, I mean, now there's going to be questions about the valuations of these teams, how that changes, what you think happens. I mean, the, the TV piece of this is locked up by Apple for a while. I don't know if you think there's other opportunities uh, for the MLS to do other things. Where does this all go? Well, I think you're going to see this is going to be the decade of soccer in the United States. I mean, with the FIFA Club Championships coming in 2025, the World Cup coming in 2026, You've seen a massive appreciation in the value of these franchises. So I think the fundamentals for the MLS over the next five to ten years are going to be very good. And again, the women are going to play a part in the game of soccer here in the U.S. So I think you're going to see a, a, a real expansion of soccer here in the next four or five years in a way that we hadn't seen. Very similar to when the World Cup came in the 1990s, there was a big push. But I think we're so much further ahead today. Uh, the sky's the limit for soccer. George, there's a, a massive debate, as you know, about pay, pay equity. Uh, we're talking about women's soccer, men's soccer. This is true in basketball, women's basketball. H- how do you think this all plays out, should play out? I think, I think you really have to look at the percentages that the men earn of the revenue. And I really think, in, in fairness, the women should have the same percentage. And I think over time, it's going to play out that way. It, it seems fair to me. And only right that the men's percentage of revenue is the same percentage as the women. Separately, uh, big headline last week, now two weeks ago, 
uh, when uh, Bob Iger made his comments about ESPN and trying to find a partner for ESPN. Uh, there are those that thought that perhaps a partnership could be with an Amazon, an Apple, uh, or a media company. Uh, we've had some reporting from CNBC.com and Alex Sherman that uh, some of that might actually be a partnership with one of the leagues or maybe multiple leagues, as in the NBA uh, and the NFL and, and, and possibly the NHL and others. If, if you were Bob Iger and you were thinking about this, what do you think they need to do? This is as they go direct to consumer as a streaming product. Look, if I were Bob Iger, I'd realize I have a great asset in ESPN. Um, as he says, it stands tall in these times. On the one hand, on the other hand, it's facing enormous headwinds with the transition from linear to streaming. And so he he's a, owns a publicly uh, traded company or runs one. He's got to find growth strategies like anybody else. You've got to pivot. So where do I pivot? I pivot to capital partners. I pivot to people that can provide me content and distribution. And in the NFL, NBA and Major League Baseball both provide content and distribution. Right for a new streaming world. And you got to look at that as well as other distribution partners. I don't think you can sit and do the same thing and hope that things get better. You're going to have to readjust and make some new bets. Do you think, though, the leagues uh, can effectively go into business with ESPN? I mean, they already are partners, of course. But the second you become an equity uh, holder, does it change the dynamic with which you think about how to license your content to the other networks? Does it upset those arrangements? And is there more money ultimately in licensing to lots of folks than into going uh, through one or two pipes, if you will? I think that they're going to the, the leagues will always be licensing their content. There may be a narrow application where there's an equity opportunity. You know, in the case of baseball and the NBA, they're going to have to go into the streaming route to solve their regional sports network challenge in the future. So that may be an opportunity for in the case of the NFL, they're looking and what to do with Red Zone, their, their, their network, NFL network. But I think it'll be a narrow application from an equity standpoint because they're going to want to uh, reserve the optionality from a general licensing standpoint. Uh, I want to go back to that women, the, the pay equity thing, George, because I'm trying to figure out exactly what you said. It was a pretty good dodge, I think, because you sounded like you were fully in, in support of, of pay equity. What, how much revenue in either soccer or, or basketball do, does the WNBA or, or women's soccer make? As a percentage, is it what percentage of, of men is it? And are women significantly below as a percentage of that revenue? Or is it just a fact of what the revenues are? They're so vastly different. What, what, what's, what percentage well, the re is? The, the revenues are different. And, and therefore, How much? you have meaningfully different. I mean, meaningfully like WNBA different. versus NBA. Give me an idea. Is it half? More meaningfully. I mean, it's meaningfully different. Billions of dollars are different. So then it's never going to be people that want pay equity. Are, you didn't say that you were for pay equity. You're, you're then it's like they should make half. Are you OK saying that? I'm, I'm not I'm not going to get into what somebody should or should I know. Make. I, heard. Should, I, I, heard gonna, <laughs> I heard. I heard. I heard. I like that. WNBA revenue is between 180 and 200 million. NBA revenue is 10 billion. So you better not hope that it's based on revenue or, or it's right. not. It's a, right. The only thing you could hope so for. So you saying it should be, you want to pay them less. So then you're saying no, no, no. your answer no. would pay them. Yeah, your answer would pay them less because they make a lot would, more than. I would pay them 50. If the NFBA gets 50 percent of the revenue, the players and the WNBA okay. players to get 50 percent of the revenue. And that is a percentage of the revenue, not not in the quality okay. of the, the pay.
Okay, fair enough. George, always good to see you, sir. We appreciate it. And we should mention uh, to the folks in our audience uh, that tomorrow, and I'm going to be there, I'm headed to Los Angeles uh, after the show today, CBC and Boardroom hosting Game Plan. It's a high-powered event bringing the most influential leaders across the sports landscape, including athletes, owners, investors, and innovators. Talk about the intersection of sports and business. I'll be interviewing Kevin Durant and Travis Scott. That's very cool. I wish I brought a Kevin Durant baseball card for you today, oh. but I didn't. Well, maybe I'll, I'll try to figure out a basketball. signature situation. A basketball, yeah, sorry, basketball card. No, Michael Kyle, Jordan almost played baseball. No, but Kyle has his shoes, his Katie shoes. But well, that, we should have him sign the shoes is what we should I didn't really bring the shoes either, so too bad. <laughs> That's the podcast for today. Thank you for starting your week with us at CNBC. If you want more Squawk Pod, be sure to follow us wherever you're listening now. And give us a shout on Twitter while it's still Twitter at Squawk CNBC. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC starting at 6 Eastern. We'll meet you back here on the podcast tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.